Welcome to the Experience Speaks podcast powered by BizStocks, the podcast created to empower career-curious students and ambitious young professionals. Each week, I interview some of the most successful directors, top-level executives, and entrepreneurs in business to hear their experiences of success, failure, and lessons they've picked up along the way. I'm your host, Sean Wolf, and today we sit down with Yati Wen. T is an international man of business. Over his 18-year career with Siemens, he has physically moved countries five times. He speaks five languages, and as you will hear, he is German. T started his career as a process analyst and quickly became the CIO of Siemens Vietnam. He also served as the CFO of a Siemens subsidiary in Spain. And now, he is the head of operational excellence for Siemens Digital Industries. By the way, if you don't know Siemens, it's a huge global powerhouse with annual revenues close to $100 billion. So I actually met T six or seven years ago through a mutual friend that was meeting me in Barcelona to celebrate my birthday. I was in college studying abroad and T lived in Barcelona at the time. He was gracious enough to take me and my friends out to have tapas and drinks and have a great time, took us around for the full weekend, and we had a ton of fun. What I could tell within a few hours of meeting T is that he is highly intelligent and an original thinker, which is why I'm very excited to have him on the podcast. T, you ready to kick it off? Hi, Sean. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. When I'm looking at what you do, it can kind of seem a little confusing at first. And of course, I've dived in and I've gotten a much better understanding. But for our listeners, can you explain what you do currently like you were explaining it to your nine-year-old daughter? So at the moment, uh, actually, uh, I am in a transition. So uh, starting a couple of days uh, from now on, I will actually change to a new position within uh, Siemens uh, Healthcare and uh, will take uh, the leadership over uh, our service line business in a particular country, which I will not disclose at this moment. <laughs> but uh, the, the past four and a half years, I've been, uh, as a head of operational excellence, I just make things run smoother. So when people need to touch a lot of things with the keyboards uh, in order to do something for the customers, that's basically where I got in because we wanted to make uh, processes basically uh, liquid and smooth so they just run automatically. So that's how I would explain it to a nine-year-old. And if my nine-year-old would be double the age, I would throw in that I'm really doing a mix between what people would consider IT and sales. So something as a hybrid in between. Awesome. What I've gotten out of what you do is you are helping teams that are normally doing a lot of manual work, data entry, whatever it might be. uh, And you're helping identify that and track it and then ultimately to automate it so that teams can just be more efficient, do less rework, and um, spend more time doing what they really should be doing. And this is part of what's called digital transformation. And that's kind of a hot topic right now. It's been around for a little bit, but you know we're really in that time of, of digital transformation. Something you said in a video is digital transformation is 1% digital and 99% human which is totally the opposite of what I would think. 
And can you kind of explain uh, that thought process behind that? Yes. And uh, when I say 1% uh, digital, 99% human, I already actually rounding up, I think it's even more human than this uh, 1% uh, digital. And what I mean by that is that uh, we often find ourselves nowadays talking a lot about technology. And I, you have to understand, I'm really a nerd. I love technology. You know, you can really get me hyped up about technology. But on the other hand, uh, I love people and humans more. And we should really focus on how technology makes their life better. So often in, 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 in the press, you hear things like, will the robots take over? Will they make us redundant? And honestly speaking, uh, despite the fact that I don't believe that, I'm not worried about robots taking over humans. I'm more worried about us humans becoming more and more like robots. Mm. How dependent are we on technology nowadays? Technology should help us and not just make us dependent. So when we automate processes, we don't do it for the sake of automation because a bad process being automated is still a bad process. So what we want to do is to automate the relevant processes so that we personally can take the time and have a nice chat or that we can actually have the time to call our customer and ask, hey, I'm not here to sell you anything, but how are you doing? If you are firefighting every day because you have bad processes, you don't have the luxury to do these things. Wow. Yeah, I love that. I've been really curious about this. Automating processes for these big companies are uh, obviously it makes a lot of sense, but is there like something that even a small company can do or even just me as a person can do to automate processes to allow me to be more human? Yeah, if I may step back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have really, really good plans on how we want to do things. And, you know, you put them into your iPhone calendar and and then you just execute on them. And sometimes we look at mm, how can I actually do this easier? You know, how, how can I uh, get this thing uh, for my work done, but at the same time also pick up the laundry or uh, do the grocery shopping, right? Mm -hmm. These things, yes, probably we can automate and someday we will have drones and flying things to your place, you know, things like that. But actually, this is not what I'm talking about when when we want to automate things, but actually we need to, first of all, actually question ourselves, is this process actually even really necessary? Mm. You know, like for example, I used to actually sort out mails and I just put them in the uh, outbox folder and I did all of these things. Now, I, 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 it's not fully automated, but it's not semi-automated that I actually have a document scanner, uh, scans it in and actually just transfers it uh, via some app easily. You know? so, and then always I can just throw it away. I can really recycle the, the paper <laughs> immediately because you still get a lot of these bank statements uh, from time to time mm-hmm. and then do this. But uh, I think that uh, automation is not really related uh, to the, the number of transactions. It's true in a big organization, it's definitely impossible to handle so many manual transactions if you don't have systems to automate. Mm-hmm. But I think also in a small, medium business, you should automate what is automatable and does not add any value in terms to your customers or even to your own employees. Because people don't want to do stupid things. You know, it's not that they're worried that uh, a, a robot, a software robot, could actually automate their work. Yeah. So anytime if you have very structured work, which is uh, repetitive, then it is a good candidate for automation. Awesome. To give a little bit of background on the impact you've made with your automation for Siemens, giant company, 
I think like three or 400,000 people in, in Siemens. You helped increase automation by 24%, decrease rework by 11%. And what that really means is you took out 10 million manual tasks. And maybe that number has probably even increased since I saw that video. But that impact is huge. But you did all that with a team of three people. That sounds insane to me. <laughs> how how can you accomplish like something so big with only like a few a handful of people? Right. Well, first of all, uh, some uh, pessimists would probably say, "Wow, our processes might have been so bad." that <laughs> three people can actually automate 10 million parts. Uh, uh, now that's, of course, uh, not true. And uh, so uh, there's actually quite a lot of uh, layers uh, to this uh, question. So let me uh, dissect uh, one by one. First of all, the 10 million less activities, that's a true fact. Uh, and it's also actually uh, incrementally increasing uh, every year. But that's not really the impact we did, which really matters. What really matters is uh, the feedback of some people saying, I've been waiting for 10 years that this stupid uh, click uh, is gone and I don't need to go between two different apps and then copy paste or things like that. Right. This is what matters. What matters is that people actually have more time to do more valuable things. And they said, wow, you don't even know what kind of pain you just relieved. Hmm. And Actually, the team of us, we did. Mm -hmm. All three of us, we went through hell because we know that processes in a big corporation are super complex. Mm -hmm. So that's also the spirit we ignited. And that's what we mean by the, the, the team of three people because we are just three. We basically ignite, we created a movement that people would basically not only be a follower, but they are actually really the writers of their own story. So they have also shared their knowledge to other countries. Like we connected and somehow from different silos from uh, top down, we became really a mesh of, of knowledge. And it's really sharing is caring. We created uh, something, let's call it like a Facebook group. Everyone could join. We didn't care from which organization, which business line, which country. And you have to imagine, Sean, there are like people giving questions and other people answering them and that's not part of a job description they're not getting paid for that and that actually creates such a momentum that it is possible that we three ignited a movement and we were able also using some pretty cool technology to also make it visible so it's not about uh, sharing the, the stories but also make it visible to everyone on on seeing how to do that. How do I create my billing invoices uh, more automated with no touch? How can I process order incomings without changing the price? You know, these are things uh, which we really shared across the organization. We're absolutely open book. Uh, and also really anyone who asked, we would basically uh, take them in into this community. And uh, we even had, uh, let's say, um, yeah, the analogy would be like a like a wiki page. So people don't become just readers of that wiki page, but they could actually really create their own questions and answers in that wiki page, and then just really took off like a rocket. Because I didn't need to have people maintaining this thing; it was basically self-contained and uh, maintained by the community. 
That's incredible. I didn't even think about you kind of empowering and enabling other people to start finding and creating and teaching others across globally. I kind of just pictured you go to each different uh, country. And I know you've done that, but, um, you know, and, and just work with each country. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, what do you like, do you think that was more of a key to success than you actually going and visiting? I think they, uh, it's, it's not like a mutually exclusive uh, okay. thing, you know, so it's not like, uh, should I eat uh, oranges or spinach? Right. I mean, you should eat them both. And so right. um, there are certain things, uh, even in, if you put them together, not in this may, maybe particular uh, case, but if you put certain things together, they become even better. Mm-hmm. So I think it was really uh, uh, very important to do the face to face and really go into the details. But I'm not talking about a detail which is trivial, but I'm talking about a detail which makes, uh, which is a decider of make or break. So the analogy here is think about a comma in a book. Mm -hmm. If you miss a comma, the book is not going to be a bad or a better book. Mm -hmm. But if you miss a comma in the rocket start sequence, then you will maybe have a rocket crashing and even people dying. So when we went to the countries, we didn't talk with them on some PowerPoint layer that you should automate. In order to increase your automation of uh, sales orders, you should automate your sales orders. Well, that doesn't help anyone, does it? Right. But when you really go into the, the, the real processes, into the pain, and then really listen to the people who actually do the work, and we basically cut out all the different layers of management, we really wanted to go to the front line because these are our heroes. Mm-hmm. And we really told them there is no, let's call it, click to stupid. We really want to understand. And you have to understand these two young ladies who are part of my team, they have been doing this for over 10, 15 years. Mm. That's what their prior job was. So there was an empathy of people actually really speaking the same uh, business language. And that doesn't mean that this is not important for a big organization. Because once you really spread it like a wildfire of positive change, then people were actually talking to other people and says, hey, did you know that T and his team, they're gonna, they just did a visit here? It's great. When are they going to visit you? And they're actually already exchanging even things even before we went there to the next country. <laughs> and that's basically uh, what needs to happen. Wow, that's incredible. You brushed over it, but I think one of the keys to success there is you, you had people on the team that they have literally have been doing that for years. Um, and I find that as a key to success, having people on the team that understand the pains already. Exactly. And uh, that uh, immediately establishes in, in, in a very quick sense also the trust, the authenticity, because uh, we build empathy. And that's what we said. You know, We didn't need to spend a lot of time to actually say why we're here. We didn't need to spend a lot of time uh, to explain you know, you know, the three lies, you know, uh, I love you, the, the check is in the mail, and from headquarter here to help, right? <laughs> so we, we basically went over that very quickly because people understood, hey, these three people, they really know their stuff. And it's not about that we gave them any answers per se, but we together asked the right questions. And if you have the right questions, then you will find the right answers as a logical consequence. Yeah, so so it's not about that 
the countries ask us, how do I do this? Please tell me. I expect that from you. No, it's all like that. But we, we talk like, hey, when you do this, when are things working fine? And when are things not working fine? And they're saying, well, particular customers, they don't want uh, that I burden them, the, the hardship in the ordering process. And that's why they sent me this kind of data and says, you guys figure it out because I'm your customer. Mm-hmm. Right? And then the people understood that we also had faced these kind of challenges. And then we could share how did we uh, solve these challenges in the past? Or which challenges are we still working on so that they need to know they don't need to reinvent the wheel a second time. Let's actually share on that thing and then just say, you know, then this country is taking care of topic A. We take care of topic B. Even we have the same problem of topic A and let's not waste time. So we actually created a lot of parallel things going on at the same time. Yeah, And we were not, let's say, a bottleneck of saying, hey, I only have a small team in the regions. You have to imagine they also have very limited uh, teams in terms of resources, but they have to really be responsible at the end of the day for all the business in their country. Hmm. And that's why this way they basically got the, let's call it the crowd sourcing of knowledge within the entire Siemens organization. They basically practically had uh, hundreds and thousands of people working in a, let's say, self-motivated team working on different things together because we also made it globally visible what the people are working on. Yeah, we shared the problems of some countries to others, which also, by the way, was new. How Mm. would you feel if you actually have to uh, share to other countries what you are uh, um, having problems with? Right. You know? Yeah. And and that uh, basically was really a change of mindset. Yeah? And that's why digital transformation is, is people business. It's about changing mindset, about pulling things, uh, not being worried about uh, errors, but basically celebrating them, challenges, not errors, in order to basically have a pooled approach on, on solving them together. Huh? Wow, that's powerful. Questions. So questions are, are so important. Sure. You know, the best project managers ask the best questions. Absolutely. Do you have advice on like how to ask better questions or ha- how to find the right questions? I don't think I have a cookbook recipe on that. But as long as the questions are authentic, uh, you have enough, let's say, self-awareness of what your knowledge is. Uh, because you have to understand, uh, it's, it's not easy, but it's, uh, it's about the competence, the ability to be the stupidest person in the room but still understanding that you have ultimately the global responsibility. So yes, I am Mr. Offer to Order, Order to Cash globally for Siemens Digital Industries. So whenever there's a customer order, I need to define how the process should be. And I'm very honest about saying, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you have other people who know more than I do, but they still have challenges. So can I listen? So asking the right questions is actually... I would say really two-thirds at least listening. So if you listen well, then you will be able to ask better questions if it's not trivial, but with empathy. And I'm not talking, let's say, in a, in a, in a psychiatrist way, like, so how does that make you feel? No, that, no that's, not, that's not what I'm asking. But basically, it is about understanding that because of this improper process for which I'm responsible, they can't go back to their families because they need to do overtime. Mm -hmm. And then you will actually ask questions like, hey, I can't fully automate this thing, 
but how would you feel if I could automate this one? And then there's one aspect you still need to do manually. They would appreciate that. What they wouldn't appreciate is, oh, it's unacceptable, this process. I will promise you to really make it better. Let's have it fully automated. Let's make a workshop, get all the people together, and let's have a kickoff, and then a string board, and then the milestones, and then all. They're like, well, that sounds all great in theory, but I'm still typing in all of these things, don't I? Right. So it's really also about giving them, uh, uh, let's say, quick wins so that they actually can build up the trust that I'm not there just talking. Great. Uh, I loved what you said that acting stupid, you can discover something by asking, you know, what might seem like silly questions because there are a lot of assumptions you make. So that, that was perfect. Thank you. So for this project, this, you know, that you recently, I guess, are wrapping up of automating globally, all these, all these manual tasks, um, was this a project that you created yourself or was it handed down from above? Actually, um, I took over from a predecessor when it was more, let's say, a theoretical kind of study. So there was actually not like the traveling and all the approaches uh, there. Uh, but when I took over the project, I really uh, changed basically everything. You know, the team set up. Uh, instead of uh, two-digit uh, teams, instead of sub-module leads, instead of steering committees, I threw it all away. And so I didn't do that. And uh, the because the reason is, and uh, maybe I should be a little bit um, more diplomatic about uh, saying this, but usually an organization can always deliver much quicker when there is the opportunity to communicate with executive management. So meaning executive management only has time every quarter to have a steel call, but it doesn't mean that you just work for that steel call. Your life goes on. So for example, if they ask me a question and I can't answer immediately, then they actually only require the answer in three months. Will I now work for that thing for three months? No, I just work on it. I can send them an email and just keep on working. Mm -hmm. So when we started with this project, we really also took an agile approach and we really wanted to slice the elephant into uh, things which uh, in the agile methodology in, or in scrum methodology you could call sprints. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And the sprint basically really meant was like, let's get together. We have a sizable portion of what we call a so-called product backlog and then we work these things off regardless of what management says, oh, by the way, this is a higher priority and all of these things. We says, no, wait mm -hmm. until the sprint and then we come back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that's basically how we worked on that. That was interesting. Regardless of what management might be trying to push uh, down on you to, to get done, how do you, how do you manage that? Um, when, you know, I mean, that's pretty intimidating if a, a, a vice president or the CEO says, Hey, we need to get this done. Usually it's, it's uh, okay, I'm dropping everything. I'm going to do that, but it might not yep. be the best thing. And uh, and to, to uh, spoiler, the, the thing is, it's actually very easy to work the way we did and to be like us. I think what's really hard is to be like us every day mm. <laughs> in good and bad days. Mm -hmm. And when management asks us, this, and you're absolutely right. You know, it needs a little bit of experience to be able to handle these kind of things. And uh, just a little bit, uh, as a full disclosure, I already had a different kind of uh, executive positions uh, before. 
-hmm. And I also did uh, social plans, you know, when you had really restructured an entire company mm -hmm. uh, with hundreds of people. So uh, let's say uh, my skin is already very thick regarding <laughs> <laughs> these uh, these things. Okay. But then again, if the if uh, some executive actually wants something and uh, basically uh, wants to, um, uh, let's say, uh, some content, thinking like, oh, someone in the country called me and they wanted to have this prioritized. Fair enough. It's it's fair, right? It's not that I say, no, I don't do anything. But me as a quote unquote, let's say, scrum master, mm -hmm. I would actually just need to go there and ask five, six times in a row why. Mm. Are you doing it because somebody else told you so? Or do you really understand why this is now more important? Will Marta be able to automate that better in comparison to all the other things we are currently working on? Do you want to be the owner of a process? Or do you are, are you only accountable for the process results? Are we talking about the how or are we talking about the what? Hmm. And often you get mixed up in that because we actually have not even answered the more important part, which is the why. Right. Yeah, and, and I think this is a very, uh, very interesting, as you mentioned it, and the, the way I actually put it into a short formula is top-down, you need executive management, top-down, but it's only for the context. It's about providing the money, the time, and the trust. Mm. But when it comes to content, of what needs to be done, it's always, please, bottom-up. Mm -hmm. It's always that bottom-up, if you have the trust, the money, and the time, I can assure you, with this empowerment, bottom-up will always deliver in less time, with less money spent, much more than expected. Wow. That is the truth. But it's really hard. And the question really is, where does bottom-up end and top-down start. And that's basically us in the middle ground. Because we in the middle ground, having the two young ladies who have gone through hell bottom-up, and me who has already worked with executives, I, I don't I don't have no problem meeting the CEO of Siemens. Mm -hmm. I don't change my, 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 my style uh, and wear a suit and a tie just because I'm meeting some execs. But it's true I can only do that because I bring in some experience of having been intimidated in the past and seeing, wow, it actually doesn't matter. They're <laughs> also just people too. Yeah? Right. And uh, I think this is uh, uh, that CEOs and executives, at the end of the day, they are more concerned with the results. And as long as you bring them, not only the expected results, but even more in less time and less money, well, you got their attention. Mm -hmm. And that's also what we did. Yeah, we got their attention. They expected us to to do certain things uh, uh, in the first 18 to 24 months. Uh, we did it in 12. Wow, that's 50%, you know, yeah. quicker. Yeah. They got, that gets their attention. Yeah. Wow. What I've discovered through this podcast, uh, you know, I've, I've reconnected with some people I really look up to or really didn't even have a connection to, but I, I still look up to from afar. Or I'm like, wow, this is really impressive. This, they're founder of this company or... CEO of that company. And what I've discovered is, even though I was really nervous to meet with them and leading up to it, once I start talking to them, I discover, hey, these are just, these are people too. And, uh, you know, same thing in, within a company, like everyone's a person, maybe they have more experience than you and you can learn from them, but you, you, I get built up in my head. And I think other people <laughs> do too. 
and that's a, that's a very good point you make, Sean, because uh, with some very few, I, I really think there are few exceptions to, uh, to this uh, observation, but I think most CEOs, they don't really glorify about their position or anything, and they talk much more about the, what they wanted to do, how they have changed things. You know, they don't talk about, oh, I'm the CEO and I'm the father of everything I need to have. They don't do these things. Mm-hmm. But what I actually see is that we, who are non-executives, uh, are always glorifying these people. So it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy that these people think they, 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 they build up a hubris, but it's not them building up the hubris, but it's actually us glorifying them with the hashtags on LinkedIn and all the posts and this CEO. But isn't that the perfect time when we, when we see now with Corona, with COVID-19, that the true heroes are not our athletes or some uh, rock star programmers doing AI stuff. It's all our nurses, right? Mm-hmm. And all the, the social workers, all of these people, they are the heroes, or even the guys uh, packing the things so that we can have food. Yeah. And, and we don't talk enough about it. Now we talk too much about it sometimes because right. they don't want us to talk about them. They want just a, a better salary and, and uh, something we can live on. <laughs> yeah. and, and so that's why for me, it's, uh, it's uh, really interesting uh, how social media has also changed really the game. Uh, uh, of of, of uh, who can create the story mm-hmm. because you have to imagine like uh, uh, the, the team uh, myself including could actually never really be heard if we were not so lucky to have been able and honored to actually work in such a project yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point I mean the people in the front lines are the heroes especially right now uh, with, with coronavirus too often they get overlooked um we got off a little, got off a little bit from where I started, but this is uh, this has been amazing. So when when you're tackling this huge project, um, you know, and I don't know what it the original goal exactly was, but uh, you know, it's it's a big project. It's globally wide. Um, through that journey, I'm sure there's ebbs and flows of success and and failures throughout the time, and especially in the beginning of a project. What is your personally? What is your self talk when you're going through? The beginning of a project or through especially hard times of, of kicking it off i think that since i had actually a, a lot of projects in the past where things really went really really south very quick very bad hmm. and uh, there was even times where i really thought that there's only negative messages there's no light at the end of the tunnel and when there was light at the end of the tunnel it was actually a train coming towards me oh man yeah. And what, what I learned is there are things I can be, let's say, concerned about, and I don't want to play with the words too much, but there's a difference between being concerned, thinking about things, and worrying about things. Right. Because it doesn't make sense that I worry about the weather because I can't control it. Mm-hmm. But I should be concerned about getting wet or not. So I bring an umbrella or not. <laughs> so even if I bring an umbrella, and it's always like that, if you bring an umbrella, it's not going to rain. But isn't that still the better alternative than being wet? Right. So when 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 a project goes uh, not the way you expect it, well, one part of it is also don't expect so much. Just give incremental value with with the time. Don't overpromise. Why overpromise? Just be actually very honest. And it is actually really easy to set, and it's just hard to do, or it's very hard to do every day, because people will always pressure you and they had expectations as, oh, I actually wanted you to be further. 
And uh, to be quite honest, I can share this with you because it has been some time. But when I started the project, after two weeks, I actually got the question, T, do you think you are the right person for this? Mm. After two weeks. And I was like, wow, that, that went <laughs> very quick. And people, had, they were absolutely crazy when they heard me saying, hey, you know what? It's not that I don't want a big team. I just don't need a big team because I would not be any more successful doing it. People actually said always, no, when you start a project, you want to staff a lot so that you have a good pool and see what you need. And then you can still size it later, right? Mm -hmm. You don't start small, but actually, no, you have to start small because otherwise people don't believe why do you need so many people doing what? And we, when we started, we said, we don't know really what we are going to do, but we have, let's say, not the right roadmap yet, but we have the right compass. Mm -hmm. And we know what our North Star is and why we want to do that. And people ask me, so what is it? And it's very easy. I've been with Siemens now 18 years. I just want that young people don't have to go through same hell as I did because I used to be on very different front lines myself. And I would be so happy that people don't need to endure this torture of bad processes that would make me happy and if they start much better than me and then they actually surpass me in knowledge because they never had to build up all of this other stuff they never got tampered by that i would be so happy and i think this is uh, something really what differentiates me a little bit and, and let me tell a story because uh, you also mentioned uh, sophie and you know if 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 i said to you hey with nine years old, and she can't, by the way, but if I told you with nine years old, she could actually speak five languages like me. Well, I would be a very proud father and nobody would have a problem with that, right? Everyone said, yeah, you are right to be a proud father. But what, how would you feel and think if you have, for example, an intern, a working student, and that person is actually going to be better than you in three months? Would you be proud and promote that person to your level? Or would you actually push her or him into the corner? Mm -hmm. Because you are afraid that your status quo, your ivory tower is now at risk. And I think this is really where, where, where it differentiates with me in an organizational structure. Because let's face it, you know, with me having worked in a big corporation for 18 years, and I have a lot of different experiences being a CIO or a CFO and all of these things, I also get, let's say, very well compensated. That's the truth. But why should not be a person who is really, really good at things be able to also do the things without actually having earned all the different stripes, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think this is really the, the, uh, where we are in this digital transformation to really understand that your heroes, A, can come from anywhere. You want to have a sales problem fixed, it could be an IT person. And on the other hand, also have to understand that the whole spiel of, of uh, experience and having, having really managerial jobs, they account for something. I don't say that this is no value, but it is not as relevant as tackling different problems at the moment. Right. And we will see very, very creative, compassionate solutions to new problems. Yeah, and I really, I have, a, I have a, just one example. Uh, there was actually a starter from Sweden who is doing uh, uh, virtual doctor's visits. And it's absolutely not common in Germany. But due to our, let's call it ground zero of Corona, people who did not have Corona, but actually had other sicknesses, they could not go to the doctors. 
So then they basically load balanced the necessities of that uh, specific town to doctors on a Zoom or Skype call, but then they could also print out uh, uh, the prescriptions they needed to go to the pharmacies. Yeah. So this did not come from someone who has been working in healthcare for 35 years. This came from young students who really said, I know what I need. I know these prescriptions. Why do I need to go to the doctor and actually get sick or also take away the time from other people? Yeah. yeah, and that's harsh. It's harsh, you know. I mean, if if I I've been working in IT and I've been working in uh, in an SAP environment, you know, doing all these integration ERP systems, it's harsh if if I see some young person come in and said, "Oh, I get it," and this is by the way how you have to do it. And I've been messing up on the, this this topic for years, and and she solves it in in, in in a couple of weeks. But I feel happy about that. I feel happy because just like I would be happy about my daughter being better than me, I would also be happier if my peers are better than me. That's that's amazing. I think anyone that's a, whether a peer or a managerial type of position should totally have that mindset and not be afraid of someone else getting better than you because that's that's how you, we grow. Absolutely. So you mentioned this, you were uh, the CIO of Siemens Vietnam and you were a subsidiary of Siemens. You became the CFO and did this turnaround. And, uh, but you, I think you even started as like just a junior project manager or something like that. But you know, through these 18 years, you've gone to five or six countries, seven different factories, uh, and you've just moved all around and you've moved probably up and down and sideways and whatever you need to do. But uh, what I think is really interesting, because you've been at Siemens for so long, what have you learned as far as rising in the company? I think that uh, what we have to understand is the times, externally speaking, are extremely dynamic. You know, Siemens, uh, when I started, uh, we were even doing mobile phones. Oh. Yeah, no more mobile phones now. Now Siemens is also entering and uh, spinning off companies, and they're going to be public listed companies. Yeah. Mm. So DAX, uh, the the German Dow Jones, basically, you know, you're going to spin off and then suddenly have three Siemenses. You know, that's possible. Yeah, not mm. not right now, but it's possible. So externally, the life is changing, but at the same time, you are changing, mm -hmm. and your perspective is also changing a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for me. You know, I became a CIO of a country in Vietnam at 23. I was a CFO of a subsidiary at 27. I was really on this career path. Yeah? Yeah. But when I did actually this whole social social plan in, in, in Spain, and I was there for four years, it really grounded you. I mean, I had to go to the police due to murder threats on my HR director. Wow. And then you are really a little boy at the police station. And understanding more or less, let's say, only 50-60% of it. And somewhere in your head it says, well, that's a joke. On the other hand, it says it could be serious, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't think about your career anymore. You don't think about how am I going to finish this job and then I have the next job, right? right. So that's why all of this uh, going up and left and right, it became less and less important. And even if it's already, let's say, overused, uh, the topic of sustainable success, succession and uh, impact and purpose became really more important. And that's what I'm so happy and so proud about it because that's 
something I never got taught, to be honest. But young people now, it's a really important thing for them. They will actually actively choose an employer to say, you know what? They are a purpose-driven organization. Mm -hmm. I want to be part of it. And I don't care whether they do electric cars or whether uh, they sell uh, cosmetic products. And I think that's great. You know, I think it's really great that people actually have now really the deliberate choice to do these things. Because honestly, I didn't, you know. Uh, I was uh, post 9-11, had to go back to Germany, you know, uh, economy went down. So I just wanted to basically have a job at that time. Right. But people now actually are choosing uh, purposeful uh, driven companies. I think that's great. You know? I think that's really important uh, as well, yeah? because otherwise you will never really be happy. And, and also what I'm trying to say is in big corporations, uh, there's always some other side where the, the lawn is greener and, and better, you know, but uh, the truth is, if if you can't change or if you don't want to change the environment, then you change yourself and then you just uh, move on. Yeah, And also change doesn't mean that things are bad, but it's basically consistently and continuously staying out of your comfort zone. I feel extremely comfortable not in my comfort zone. Mm. Can you imagine like how it was feeling when I became a CFO? I've never done accounting. Yeah. I've never done controlling. And I don't even speak the language. And there I was having to do a social plan, a restructuring of the entire company. And yeah, of course, I was overwhelmed. And now I will actually go into uh, healthcare. I've been all my life in manufacturing and industry. Now I go into healthcare. So that's also going to be a very, very different kind of uh, game to play. But I'm very excited. And I think that's really what uh, makes it uh, so great. Uh, the, one of the plus points, I guess, working in big companies is you have uh, possibilities to really branch out in a very, very diverse way. But on the other hand, don't get me wrong, I would also love to work for a, a small startup or a, a medium-sized uh, company because uh, there, of course, you must be entrepreneurial because they have no luxury for, let's say, call it the big uh, corporate uh, politics. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think there's always uh, some good sides to any size of company. Yeah, absolutely. For these moments of change, because you've changed career paths in a way from CIO to CFO, which is totally new, what was your approach to learning the, the language and learning uh, the accounting side and the controlling side and, mm. and really putting on that CFO hat when you didn't have that experience? What was your process? Uh, again, you have to be authentic and honest when you don't know. But you still have to make sure that people understand that you are not ducking away from your responsibilities. So uh, when I was a CFO and I was overseeing the department head of controlling and finance on IT and logistics and compliance and audit and procurement, you know, so I had all of these uh, managers and they had their own teams. And quite frankly, at that time, I didn't know much about procurement, yeah, purchasing procurement. I didn't know. But ultimately, I still need to sign off when we are buying a 1 million euros worth of copper. Yeah. I need to understand, is it a lot? Is it little? I don't know. I really didn't know, but I was, I was not dodging my responsibility as the CFO of signing it off. So what I would do is I give trust because often, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of it. Uh, I don't know whether there's also this uh, uh, English equivalent, but you have to earn my trust. Mm -hmm. I think that's the worst thing ever I've heard. That doesn't make sense to me. Like you have to earn my your trust, like based on what? Your looks, 
your credentials, your CV or what. Mm. Everyone gets my trust. The mm. question only is, if you are not delivering on the trust I've given you, what kind of consequences do I do? And there I'm really, really harsh. Mm. I said, you know, first strike, second strike, sorry, out. Mm. So everyone gets my trust. But the funny thing is, if you do that, you will be always or most of the times really positively surprised. If you are really honest of saying, I don't know, but I'm still responsible, I'm sorry that I need to take away your time for you to explain to me what is the process, what do I need to take care of, people will not cheat you. Mm. They will not tell you something wrong just so that you decide wrong and then they say, ha ha. No, they don't. So really, there were certain things which everyone knew and I really had to ask Honestly, I don't know. Can we have a time out here, postpone or whatever? Because I need to understand that. I feel so uncomfortable to making a decision right now because I don't understand. And people understand if you say, I don't understand because you show empathy also in other parts where you also understand that they don't know how to do things. So there's always a give and take in terms of competencies, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but of course, what helps is that you show sincere interest. But when I started in Spain, I know that uh, soccer, uh, football was a really big part of the culture. Oh, I yeah. literally memorized every player in the La Liga. Yeah. Just so that I could actually at the lunch break <laughs> talk about football with them. <laughs> yeah. So you show some sincere interest also in their culture besides work. And uh, so, and then you don't have to fake it. Because for me, it was also very enjoyable. You know, I just didn't pay so much attention to Spanish soccer league before. Mm -hmm. But once I'm there, and I also start the language. Also, the same thing of actually giving uh, uh, our daughter uh, a Spanish name as well. So mm. in Spain, she also was Ana Sofia. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very, very Spanish name. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, this really helps to establish a trust and then. I, I also let you know, I can really share with you. In the past, I always was thinking, well, um, not every gardener can be re-qualified to become an HTML5 developer. Mm. I actually think, no, they can. Mm. I actually think that everything in terms of hard skills, you can learn. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of how much enthusiasm and motivation they can have or they bring. but actually. Everything in terms of what we consider, let's say, hard competencies can be learned. Yeah, and that's why I, 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 I had the same thing. I had to learn everything for my job. Yeah. Because I really didn't know much <laughs> for this uh, particular part. Yeah. yeah uh, I think that's, that's so true. You know, I think I'm kind of seeing a, a common theme is if you don't know something, don't be afraid to, to admit that and, and just you know, be honestly interested in whatever it is you're trying to learn. Uh, or problem you're trying to solve. So uh, you are known for wearing graphic t-shirts, like cool, fun <laughs> graphic t-shirts. Uh, you know, even if you're in a big business meeting, like you mentioned before, uh, and you're wearing one, so I, I wore one myself. Uh, but I kind of wanted to know, what's your, your philosophy behind that? Um, I tried to, to uh, make it very quick. So I, I stole this uh, thing actually from um, Nelson Mandela, who is, by the way, also really someone I, I really love. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's a fact that you know he was really the first black man on the continent who actually wore a tailored suit mm-hmm. and then people looked at him and said why are you wearing a tailored suit you traitor i says no i need to do this because otherwise we're not taken seriously right and then he went to prison and all of these things and then he came out then only he wore madiba shirts what, what so kind people, of shirts? Uh, this uh, it's a uh, batik kind of shirts, you know, very colorful ones. You know, if you okay, see like right, old right. Uh, Mandela, you see all these yeah. batik shirts, right? Got it. And the reason is, and uh, uh, this is again, you know, people who saw him really said, "Is this Nelson Mandela? Or is it Monk Freeman?" So in order to actually differentiate him, <laughs> he actually wore these shirts. So the thing is that when I started Siemens in two thousand two, in my area, I was actually basically speaking, really one of the very few Asians. Mm. But now when they actually have more Asians, people actually also mistake me for somebody else just because I'm Asian. Mm. So I'm not just Asian, but I'm the Asian with the shirts. And then also second, it's also due to the fact that now it has become uh, such more relaxed. You know, No one is basically wearing a tie anymore. Mm-hmm. So then also our executives, everyone is actually dressing down. And I says, well, if you guys dressing down and it was always very... <laughs> Very easy going. Well, I'm gonna dress down now to t-shirts, <laughs> so <laughs> that's a, a very nice uh, time saver <laughs> when it comes to ironing uh, uh, shirts yeah. and things oh, like that. Yeah. Um, and so the shirt you're wearing today is a plastic bank shirt. Um, and so uh, I noticed you you've you've been wearing that a lot in videos, and even have that uh, on some of your your profiles that you're like an ambassador to that. So I kind of wanted to know um, what Plastic Bank is so for people who don't know, and then also what you know why you're being involved in it and what your involvement is. Yes. And I, I try to keep it short, but you, you can imagine I probably would be able to talk for hours about it. You know? so, oh, I bet. <laughs> a Plastic Bank uh, was uh, founded by David Katz and uh, Sean Frankson and, uh, from uh, Vancouver. And the thing is that if you have a sink flowing over with water, you're not going to take a mop and a bucket. You're going to turn the tap off. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, yes, fishing plastic out of the ocean is better than doing nothing, but it's worthless. We need to understand where does the plastic come from. Mm. And the plastic comes from impoverished regions. Mm-hmm. who cannot think about recycling. So they need to think about food and shelter. So what the Plastic Bank does is to not have a shaming on, oh, plastic is bad. It doesn't matter because plastic is already there. It doesn't matter whether you like it or you don't like it. It's a fact. It's there. But we don't need to use single-use plastic. How can we introduce that plastic and give it value? So there are people who collect the plastic. They are weighed and cleaned up at the collection centers. And then they actually return anything what they need for life. Hmm. And it's not money. It can be money. But the thing is that poor people don't need money. Poor people need the things you can do with money. Right. So really, at now these collectors can exchange it for tuition, for electricity, for Wi-Fi hours or whatever. And now they actually get a new identity because they really have a a, 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 a worth doing things by collecting plastic. So now plastic 
enters into our society as social plastic. And you have, you know, uh, SC Johnson and uh, you can buy Windex, you know, and it is actually social plastic because even it is more expensive for them to procure, actually they know how much of other things they have taken out out of the equation in terms of CO2 and all of these other things, but at the same time actually supported poor people. Right. So plastic in the ocean is not a problem of plastic. It's a human problem. Again, mm -hmm. the human centricity and the human issue we are actually dealing with is poverty. Uh, so that's why I'm, I'm very, very proud to be supporting the plastic bank uh, wherever I can. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not about sustainability, but it's really about making the world even a better place than what we entered in. Beautiful. I'm going to switch gears into uh, the rapid fire. Sure, go ahead. So what was your first job? I was actually a piano tutor. Piano tutor. <laughs> yeah, but that was, that was actually uh, during uh, my first year as a, as a freshman in college. Yeah, but uh, my, my first, uh, let's say, uh, uh, well-paid job <laughs> was an EDI analyst. So in IT, it's basically about uh, analyzing um, electronic orders, you know, the, the electronic trade. It's a, it's a standard which has been around for probably even 60, 70 years. It's really called the United Nations ED, so Electronic Data Interchange. That's what EDI oh, means. Interesting. It's very, very old standard. <laughs> what did you learn at that job? Uh, at that job, uh, I learned quite a lot of uh, uh, how uh, ERPs work. And also uh, that uh, in the corporate environment, uh, the content, uh, the logic often doesn't actually matter. Yeah? So that was actually quite hard for me because I'm a very analytical person. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I don't see it as a necessarily bad thing. I get still frustrated about it. But the day I don't get frustrated about it, it's actually a bad day. So that's why I'm happy that I get frustrated about it. <laughs> that's interesting. Um... Do you have a, a mantra? The one mantra I really have is like uh, never stop asking questions. Okay. Think, yeah, because uh, never stop asking questions, it means you're continuously learning. That's yeah. just another way of saying yeah. it. Uh, I love it. And I've, like I said, I've, I've seen that, that theme through this conversation. Um, Who has been your greatest mentor? Uh, sorry, it's not a rapid answer, but uh, it's uh, dear to my heart that I need to elaborate on this answer. Is I think mentors, are overrated. Interesting. I think uh, what is uh, uh, much more important in your, let's say, success in any organization is you have to have sponsors. You know, there's even a very good TED talk about that, exactly about that. Mm. Yeah, you need to have sponsors who actually will who will vouch for you even they have nothing to gain. Mm. So much more important because mentors are different. And uh, I believe in coaches. Yeah. So mm. uh, if you think about coaches, you know, uh, I have uh, coaches uh, in emotional intelligence, uh, in, in, in linguistics, and uh, different uh, ways of uh, corporate story. So, um, yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a really, really interesting, interesting take. So, sponsors are more important in in your opinion than than mentors and, and same with coaches. Uh, yeah. So, I think it's like a, a coaches, sponsors, mentors. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, I love that. I love the the different take. What has been the best investment of your time? Learning about things which are not related to your, let's say, academia or your professional life. Hmm. Uh, that's, by the way, also my, uh, honestly, my only interview question, which always matters to me. 
Hmm. I always ask people, what have you learned in the last, let's say, three months, six months or whatever, which had nothing to do with this job or your academic studies if you're doing, let's say, an MBA part-time or something like that. Tell me what you have learned. And it's, it's weird because people apparently don't pick up a book anymore or uh, want to learn gardening or learn about cooking or anything. Really, I, I allow any answer. But it's so interesting that people actually don't learn something totally new and unrelated and talk about it passionately. You know, if you ask me, you know, I could really tell you that uh, I, I, I learned about graph databases. It has nothing to do with my work. But it really interested me because I saw this small YouTube video. And I said, you know, I want to learn more. Hmm. And uh, or, or actually, I, I started a, a course on how to do 2D animation. I don't need that. Yeah. But I want that. I right. want that. <laughs> I want to understand how that, how that works. You know? and, and, and that's basically, again, going back to the mantra, best investment of time. And time is the most precious thing, right? Hmm. Bill Gates also has only 24 hours, is continuously to learn. And don't talk about learning relevant things. When you enjoy something, and that entertainment and gives you something and you can share it, that's already the best return on investment already. I love it. Um, that was an amazing answer. Uh, when you were getting ready to enter the real world, graduating college, mm -hmm. uh, what were your expectations? Quite honest, at that time, basically none. Uh, I, was, uh, I was at a hard place because uh, my long-term relationship uh, she was uh, still in the Bay Area. She didn't graduate yet. So for me, it was not really that I was ready to really have a job, but uh, I don't know if you remember, but I graduated in the two and a half years, my four-year degree. That's why I was very, very quick uh, with that. Yeah. And uh, so I really said to myself, well, I just, I'm 19. I still have time to play around. Let's put it this way. So mm -hmm. honestly, not many uh, expectations of my first job. <laughs> On that topic, I, I... I remember it, but I just wasn't in this mindset. How did, can you just tell people how you graduated in two and a half years from a four-year <laughs> university? Well, it's actually a very simple uh, trick, to be honest. Um, all the general education credits I took at one university, and then I was enrolled in uh, another university, so taking also online classes. And yes, it's true, like a, a full load uh, for me, and I think <laughs> that was really crazy. Uh, because uh, the other day I was looking at my transcript, but in my graduating uh, semester, I had nine classes. So that was like uh, double load, I think, right? I think four or five classes is usually... Exactly. Four yeah. or five is... <laughs> and I had the nine. I had 27 credits. And uh, so, yes, I didn't sleep much. And uh, as you know, you know, we were both uh, in a, a professional um, co-ed uh, fraternity. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so... Uh, somehow, and by the way, it's uh, it's still an aftermath or a, a good thing. I actually still don't sleep much. <laughs> Since that college time up to now, I only need uh, three to four hours max, uh, and I feel totally fine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I remember you telling me uh, you basically would just take the book and, and learn the subject on your own at your own time and speed, and uh, and then you'd show up for the exams, and some of the professors would be like, "Who are you? You're you're not my student." Yeah, you're like, "Oh no, <laughs> here's my ID. Here's, here's yes. here, I'm in this class, and you have a good memory. Yes, the best grade, best grade. Uh, and just so people know, you didn't just go through speed through school and you know get C's and D's or you know barely pass. Like you you had I, you know, I, I think actually on LinkedIn, it said that like a 3.9 GPA. 
um, which is so you're doing 27 units at a very <laughs> high level. <laughs> yes, and it's actually very funny because there's two things in universities I learned afterwards, and I think it's okay to share. I didn't know what actually a fraternity is. I thought it's a club. So <laughs> once I was there, I, I didn't understand and I didn't want to back out. Right. And uh, the second thing I learned uh, is like I didn't understand actually what summa cum laude and all of these things meant. Mm-hmm. And uh, when when you are let's say at the graduation, and uh, actually I didn't uh, I don't know how you call it I didn't walk you know I didn't go there mm. because I was mm-hmm. actually just out of money. I couldn't actually afford <laughs> all the robes and all these things, and no one uh, from my family actually came from Germany to to visit me. Right. So mm-hmm. for me, it was a very uneventful thing. Okay. And that was so funny because then they read out the three or four people who had summa cum laude and then I was not there on stage. And it's, you know, it's one thing if you have like thousands of people, names to list. And then we said, where is Giati? And I could, they butchered my name and right. I was like, oh my God, what's actually happening? <laughs> so that's actually what I only learned afterwards, what that meant. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I loved, I loved hearing about your college adventures uh, going, going through, speeding through school. Uh, it was really very interesting. I've never heard anything like it. So what um, what has been your biggest mistake and what have you learned from it? Well, you actually gave the answer. Because if I learned from it, then it wasn't a mistake. <laughs> if I didn't learn anything from it, then it would have been still a mistake because now it has just become a learning experience, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so therefore, I guess the biggest mistake uh, I will still do hmm. because I haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. If you ask me, let's say up to date, I could uh, tell you about maybe a, a business decision where I bet on the wrong horse, mm-hmm. but I'm still here, am I not? And I'm still mm-hmm. happy, you know. So I don't really think that this was then a mistake, but it was a, a a learning experience. But if you want to have one specific, let's say, mistake or let's say a a, a guidance. I think whenever you take on a new job or position where you're also in a managerial position and you lead people, I really think that if the chemistry does not work with one person, you need to basically uh, find a a mutual solution in a year. Because after a year, then you can't change anything anymore. Mm. Yeah. So, so many times when you work in with a team, it has not to be about one person. It can be even the best performer. It doesn't matter. If the best performer is toxic to the team, you need to basically, uh, quotes unquote, get rid of this person in one year. Because if you keep that person in one year, you have absolutely no more excuse to actually not get along with that person in that team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is uh, basically one learning experience I had uh, where I actually thought, uh, no, I should continue with this person because he is really, in terms of competence, the best. Mm-hmm. And that actually didn't matter because even his best made other people bad. Right. Because they could not work in the team. Yeah. Yeah. I I have personally experienced that and lived it and I totally agree that chemistry on the team and you know, even if someone's a high performer, if they're bringing other people down, it's it's not worth it. Exactly. Um what are you excited about in the next six to six months to a year? Well, first of all, of course, uh, the obvious move uh, to the other side of the mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah, so we will be uh, relocating uh, to Southeast Asia. Uh, seeing my girl uh, going to a new school, uh, spending more time with the parents-in-law, or also giving my daughter and my my wife uh, much more face time mm-hmm. uh, with uh, this side of the family. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And what I'm also in, interested and excited to see, I'm really excited, is uh, when we say things will go back to normal, you know, with all the, the corona situation, I don't think it's going to be happening in the next six months, probably more like a year or two. But I think it's going to be very interesting on how we are going to define the new normal. Right. Because we have now a really great opportunity. And uh, for me, it will be very interesting uh, to see, because I don't believe that there will be a prolonged recession, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. I think that actually people will be uh, picking up uh, and also taking probably the lead from the United States. You know, you are basically now affected by far the worst. Uh, but I think also in terms of uh, uh, picking up, uh, you will be the quickest. Mm. Whether you will be able to compensate, I don't know. Yeah, I hope so, but uh, I'm, I'm not so sure about that, about it. But uh, what I will be very interested is to see how are topics like uh, universal healthcare coming back? How are we going to address things of uh, bailouts, universal basic income? I don't know. Yeah, and it's not that I'm one for it or against it or whatever, but I just want to know how we're actually dealing with these topics. How are we talking about sustainability? Are we going to change our flying behavior, not because of Corona only, but Corona gave us a triggering event to rethink our uh, CO2 emissions? You know? So this mm-hmm. is going to be what's uh, going to be exciting uh, to me. Yeah, I think mean, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, final question. What legacy do you want to leave upon the world? I think that's also a very easy uh, question and uh, for me personally to answer. Uh, I don't believe in the word, uh, even I used it, by the way, uh, in the word sustainability. Uh, sustainability means to me, like, uh, uh, Sean, uh, for the last year, I have been stealing your sandwiches. Uh, now I give you 365 sandwiches. We're even. <laughs> that's sustainability, right? We're even. So my legacy to the world, what I hope is that I actually can leave the world better off when I actually entered it. Mm. Nothing more, nothing less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to be not in the vicious cycle, but I want to be in the virtuous cycle. And I think it's uh, it's uh, it's really important that I just want to leave my my vision or my aspiration is that maybe our grand grand kids ask our grandchildren, what well, then parents and grandfathers and mothers themselves. Sean, what does actually this word climate change or plastic in the ocean mean? They don't know it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does it mean, poverty? How can I imagine? What is poverty? Yeah. You know, that is basically what I think uh, is the legacy. Not that we will achieve it, but that we are working towards that aspiration, even if it takes more uh, generations. And I think this is also a fundamental difference of how some people work some people want to cash in in their own generation and i don't hmm. so i have i'm perfectly fine let's say to to live an impoverished life if i could at least give something more to the future generation that's fine i will never experience it myself but i would be leaving the world in a, in a much more peace of mind if i would know that this is a better place yeah, and of course you know i don't know whether i can do it all globally you know, I would, of course, start with family, my, my, my direct environment and everything. But that's why it's also for me so important uh, that, uh, the, and I think uh, the, the previous CEO of IBM, uh, Ginny Rometti, she put it very well. It's like, your value will not be what you know, but what you share. And I think that's really, really, uh, really amazing 
because there's so many different layers to it. So the legacy, your value of what you are, is not what you know or what you have achieved, but it's actually what you share. Hmm. Because that actually means it is more scalable hmm. and other people can actually uh, build on, on top of that. Yeah? Wow, that was, that was powerful. Well, T, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Sean. Well, that will do it for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Experience Speaks podcast powered by BizTalks. This is a new podcast and we'd love to hear your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review because it will help us create more of what you love. And it will help other ambitious career-minded listeners find this podcast. Experience Speaks is edited by John Chang. I'm your host, Sean Wolf. See you next week. Oh, oh, how did we get